This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. He was going to go everywhere he could in this country and talk on any medium he could get a hold of and tell the story of his people, what happened to them, and how they had been screwed over and demand action. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about Chief Joseph, a celebrated member of the Nez Perce and defender of justice in the 19th century Pacific Northwest. Near the end of his life, he visited Seattle. If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. These words were a chief's pledge at the end of the so-called Nez Perce War in 1877. The chief was Chief Joseph, whose native name was Minmatu Yalatket, translated as thunder rolling in the mountains. The words helped make Joseph famous and were seen as marking a closing chapter for indigenous peoples in the United States as they were rounded up and forced to live how and where the government willed. But Joseph was not done. After surrender, he waged a 25-year campaign to win the hearts and minds of the American people. And that effort brought him to Seattle one November weekend in 1903 to plead his case. So I guess, I mean, in some ways, it seems like you've, in recent times, sort of found these legendary folks who sort of passed through Seattle and sort of had some influence. I mean, there are a few of those in this season. How did you stumble across the story about Chief Joseph visiting Seattle? Well, I first read about it in Timothy Egan's book, Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, which is the biography of Edward Curtis. In the course of that book, he devotes a couple of paragraphs to Chief Joseph's visit to Seattle in 1903. So that was where I first heard about it. And one of the questions that really occurs was, well, why did he come here? You know, was this a sideshow thing? Was this um, publicity? You know, what, 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 you know, why did he come here? So I was curious about that, but I didn't really think a lot about it. And then I was talking with Stephen Haig, who was the producer of Mossback's Northwest. He's since retired. But mm-hmm. uh, when we were thinking about stories for season six, he brought it up and he said, Chief Joseph came here. He lived in Washington. You know, he met with presidents and lobbied Congress. Why did he come to Seattle? Stephen was interested in, in that story. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah, why did he come, and what did what did he think about us, and and what did we make of him? Mm-hmm. And so that, that just set me on track of trying to find out more details. Now, it's a story that has been has been written about. It's not super obscure, but most people don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, a really interesting story about our relationship with indigenous people, yeah. both back in the late 19th century, but also things that are very much in 
top of mind today in terms of the status of um, tribes Mm -hmm. and the memory and culture and appropriation. All of these subjects are things that people in Seattle are reading about, thinking about, and, and they're relevant to that visit, it turns out. It, ter- uh-huh. it turns out the visit had a lot of uh, substance to it, even if the substance didn't necessarily change minds yeah. or influence policy. But it's a, it's, it's a very powerful story, I think, in terms of what it tells us for now about this remarkable individual. For those who are sort of unfamiliar with Chief Joseph and his story, yeah, maybe you could sketch that out really quickly for us. Yeah, I mean, the short version was that in basically the period after Custer's last stand, the Mm -hmm. Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876, the government was determined to bring indigenous people, quote, under control. And there were certain bands of the Nez Perce who had rejected treaties and who had refused to go to the main reservation, which is in Idaho. And of course, that's where many, if not most of the Nez Perce went after being pushed into it by the government. And Chief Joseph led his band and was joined by some other bands of people. When they were told they were going to be forced onto reservation, they fled and they sought to go to Canada, where some Native peoples had found uh, a kind of sanctuary uh, mm. in Canada where they weren't, you know, being tormented, I guess is the best way to put it, by the U.S. military. But the the army went all out to capture them and to bring them in. And there were a series of battles that were fought in Idaho and Montana as uh, they fled toward the Canadian border. And uh, the Nez Perce won almost all of those encounters. Hmm. There was, uh, you know, brilliant tactical maneuvering on the part of the Nez Perce, and uh, the army had a devil of a time. It's, a, you know, a sad story, too, because uh, they were wearing down. They were beginning to starve. They got to the point where they couldn't hold out any longer, just shy of the border. And uh, they were punished by being sent to way far away from their home. The summer home of Joseph's band was the Wallowas in northeastern Oregon, which is beautiful valley and mountain range in that corner of Oregon. It's like something, it's it's like you have this beautiful prairie land and then somebody took like a version of the Olympic mountains and plopped them right in the middle oh, there, you know, and they're, they're glacier carved snow-covered mountains, absolutely gorgeous. They're full of alpine lakes. And this was where Joseph, his father, also Joseph, and family lived there. This was their homeland. Mm. And they had wanted to go back. And at one point, the government said that they were willing to send them back, but changed their mind. This is before the flight to Canada. This is previously, there's a whole series of treaties that occurred. But they were told at one point that they would be able to go back. And then President Grant changed his mind because there were white settlers starting to flood into that area. Before whites had discovered the Wallawas, they were considering that maybe they could go back. And then once whites discovered it and saw what a great place it was Mm -hmm. and wanted to settle there, then it was like, no, you can't go back. 
We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska Airlines is your go-to when it's time to go. Alaska has the most nonstop flights from the West Coast, serving more than 120 destinations across the U.S., Mexico, Canada, Costa Rica, and Belize. On top of an unbeatable onboard experience, Alaska has the most rewarding loyalty program in the sky. As a mileage plan member, you'll watch the perks fly in. And now, as part of the One World Alliance, you can earn and redeem Alaska miles to more than 1,000 destinations worldwide. Ready to go global? Visit alaskaair.com now to land a low fare and the best care in the air. After Joseph's band surrendered, they were banished to Kansas, then to Oklahoma's Indian Territory, where they suffered disease and deprivation. The move violated the terms of their surrender. Joseph demanded the government treat indigenous people with the same rights and values enshrined in the Constitution. Joseph's band was eventually moved to the Colville Reservation in northern Washington, but Joseph was not content to live in exile there. The Nez Perce War, so-called, made Chief Joseph famous. And this is sort of interesting because, you know, he led this, you know, renegade band, but he had outwitted and outsmarted, or he was given the credit for that by the U.S. military and by the public at large. You know, they were amazed that he was able to beat the army. He was able to fight so hard for his homeland. And so he became a kind of celebrity. He became famous, even in defeat. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, people were of two minds about it. You know, the, and I'm talking, when I say people, I mean the sort of white American audience mm -hmm. um, who are now, you know, reading newspapers and getting the news via wire services and, and that kind of thing. You know, he was seen as this heroic figure. Some people compared him to Napoleon for his brilliant uh, campaign. But yet because he was captured, defeated, etc. He also became a kind of representative of the, the noble savage so-called in defeat, the last of a dying race. And this is a theme that comes up, you know, over and over again is this, we've beaten you, but now we're going to pay homage to you, <laughs> you know, this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But I think one thing that Chief Joseph figured out was that this celebrity, and people can argue about whether he was the military figure or, you know, were there other 
leaders who were more responsible for that or whatever. Mm. But he's the one that really got all the credit and the focus of the publicity. And if you look at the newspapers of, uh, you know, the 1890s or so, I mean, he's all over and he's traveling. He's talking. I think the thing he realized is that he had a story to tell that people were willing to hear. And he was going to go everywhere he could in this country and talk on any medium he could get a hold of and tell the story of his people, what happened to them, and how they had been screwed over, and demand action, demand that justice be done. And, of course, the history of how treaties Many of them were forced upon indigenous people. Even then, the treaties were not upheld by the, by the American government. How indigenous people were treated not as citizens, let alone second-class citizens. How our Constitution talked about all men are created equal, and this is not how we, they were treated, how the Nez Perce were treated or other tribes were treated. And he had an audience for this. He had stature in the mind of the American public. And he had the stamina to travel around the country and tell his story. He, he did, he went to Washington, D.C. many times. He met with the generals who chased him down. He met with uh, people in Congress. He, he visited, uh, talked to more than one president trying to get justice. And also trying to get the Wallawas back for his people. He wanted to go home. He wanted his people to be able to go home. Understanding the tragedy of Chief Joseph is that, I mean, and fundamentally, he he did he did this incredible work, and he changed the hearts and minds of many people, and he traveled around the country, and he um, called for justice, and in the end, what he was asking for, he never got. Right. That's right. Yeah. Now, I mean, the story isn't over, and and this is an important mm. point because it's mm. it's important. To the Joseph story, it's also important to the contemporary part of it. Yeah. And that is that the reason he came to Seattle was he was invited. Yeah. And he was invited by Edmund Meany, who was one of the founders of the Mountaineers. He was a a teacher, a professor at the University of Washington. And he had done his, I believe it was his master's thesis on Chief Joseph. I think in 1901... If I'm not mistaken, he went up to Nispelum on the Colville Reservation and interviewed Chief Joseph. And this was a rare sort of event. Usually Chief Joseph would go out, you know, but here was this kind of young college guy who who came up and he wanted to meet and talk and get the history of what happened from Chief Joseph himself. Mm. And uh, they struck up a friendship, Uh, you know, they... This was a communication that went well. So a couple of years later, Meany invited Chief Joseph to come to Seattle. He'd been to many places, but he had never been to Seattle. His motive was is interesting because Meany was very sympathetic to what 
Joseph's experience and what Joseph wanted. And he wanted other people to hear that message. Meany was also a storyteller. He wanted to tell that story himself. He wanted to learn about Chief Joseph's experience and then use the occasion of his visit to Seattle to speak out on the subject himself. But he viewed Joseph as the member of a dying race. And this is this is important because it was part of the power of his speaking was this idea that this is the end of an era. This is the end of a people. And we've we've won, but now we can be more benevolent and maybe we can correct some of the mistakes. But mostly it was the sense that Native people in this country were the past, that you didn't really talk about their future. You didn't really talk about contemporary life. I mean, there were people who, who did talk about that, but in the general public argument, it was the frontier is over, the indigenous people are all on their reservations or in their residential school system being trained to be white people. Yeah. And so it's important, Meany thought, to record the history. He wanted to talk to Joseph in order to to get the actual history before he died. And, and it's, it's poignant because Meany was keenly aware that this incredible living history represented by elders like Chief Joseph was actually touchable. It's history so close, but it's going to disappear soon, and I've got to grab it. I've got I've to get that information into the histories that we tell. Mm. But it's still looking at indigenous people as things of the past. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, been pointed out and whatnot for many, many years, you know, that yeah. indigenous people have to make the argument, we are still here. We are part of contemporary life and we are part of the future. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Meany didn't quite see it that way, but he had this great sympathy and, and desire to hear firsthand mm -hmm. Joseph's experience. So he invited Chief Joseph to come to Seattle and give a lecture, a public lecture, tell us his story and tell us what he wanted. In the meantime, Meany was determined to, he was a real promoter of the Northwest and mm. and the, the future of the Northwest and everything. And, and Meany wanted to show the city off mm. to Joseph. I think in many ways he seemed almost as interested in, in showing Seattle to Chief Joseph than, than he was the other. I mean, that's not quite fair, but... There's an element of truth in that. So Chief Joseph and another relative, Red Thunder Companion, came to Seattle. They came by train by way of Spokane <laughs> and oh, wow. came on the train. And they were taken to a luxury hotel downtown and put up there. Meany was very excited because the next day the UW football team was playing a game. So this is football in 1903. So we're talking mm -hmm. about... You know, the little leather helmets and, and you know, a weirdly shaped, it was more like rugby kind of, you know, mm -hmm. and a very violent game. There wasn't Husky Stadium then, and they weren't even called the Huskies then, <laughs> but they were playing other colleges and universities on the West Coast. That day they were playing Nevada. And so, you know, they get up in the morning and the football field is up near Seattle University. It's mm -hmm. up up 
sort of between Seattle U and Providence Hospital. There's a mm-hmm. uh, yeah. athletic field there, and oh. uh, this is where some of the some of the UW games are held. And they take Chief Joseph to this game, and they they put, they put him. I mean, he's dressed in Western clothes, but he's he's clearly you know an indigenous leader. Many people recognize him. He's not very talkative, particularly. And there's there's a translator there, a former Indian agent who is along who can do translating if necessary. Hmm. And they get on this crowded streetcar that, you know, heads up to, to the area. And uh, then they go down to the field and it's a mud bowl. I mean, this game, it's the weather's not great. And yeah. there's it's the largest crowd in UW history. There's something like three or 4,000 people jammed into this place. Mm-hmm. The game takes place, and these teams are just wailing on each other, pile-driving their, each other into the ground head first. And uh, somebody offered Chief Joseph a cigar, and he was kind of baffled because he was used to different kind of smoking device. Right. You know, and, and he ended up standing there for a long time and then sitting down and people were coming up and introducing themselves and this kind of thing. And he thought the whole thing, he was amused by it, I think, according to the newspaper accounts, but also kind of baffled by it. Um, <laughs> and he was like, well, I saw people almost fighting, he said. You know, I kind of couldn't understand, like, well, you're either fighting or you're not. What is this sort of, yeah, you know, in-between kind of thing? Yeah. Anyway, this is his first introduction to Seattle is watching this, you know, crazy sport through a securitous route. They make their way back to the hotel. Chief Joseph is exhausted by the time they hike up the hill to get there. And uh, then later that night, he's due to give a speech at the big Seattle theater downtown and give his talk, which he does. He shows up late and he's not particularly talkative. He gives a very short speech which is translated in the paper. There's a translator there. And the message is pretty simple. I mean, the message is, I have tried to write this injustice about our home. Mm -hmm. And I've learned over the course of the years that uh, I've talked to presidents and other others. What I've learned is that white men are liars. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's just flat out. All I want is to be able to go back to my homeland and be buried among my people. That is basically it. The Duwamish people still seek recognition as a tribe, and tribes have spent decades fighting for treaty rights, civil rights, human rights, and sovereignty. After a four-day visit, Joseph departed. He never got his Wallawas back. He died less than a year after his Seattle visit and is buried in Espelum, where Meany spoke at his grave. Joseph's struggle for justice, however, lives on. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9, every week through mid-November.
You can subscribe to the Mosspack podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode. 